Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm Harmony and I'm here with Russell Cade. I am so excited. We're going to have another case of the giggles today. Yeah. Intermixed with Vedanta. <laughs> We're joined with someone who is wonderful and very special and um, also incredibly well-read and a deep thinker. An intellectually gifted young Irishman, Luke Jordan, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, thank you so much. You're so sweet, both of you. We like we just like listening to the sound of your voice. I like listening to it too. So. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna listen to this back again and again. <laughs> well, you should. Yeah. Luke, where where are you today? Where are you calling us from? Uh, I'm calling from Portugal, from a place called Colares in Portugal, which is in a little area called Sintra. And it's the most beautiful place on the planet, overlooking the ocean in this national reserve. Uh, So I feel incredibly lucky to be here. Did you know that I was conceived in Portugal? I didn't know that. Yeah, my mom made love to my dad uh, (laughs) on the beach right near you. In, near Lisbon, and uh, that's illegal, she, I think. Yeah, it is now. Yeah, but in '75, it was a fascist government. It was fine, and um, she said, "Yeah." She told me she just went up into shoulder stand until she till the the spermies took hold. That's one way of doing it. I saw that <laughs> they, they did that in uh, with the, the big Lebowski. Yeah, that's right. That's that's exactly what I thought. I was like, oh yeah, that's how I was made, just like that. <laughs> Where so. Uh, were you conceived in Portugal as well? No, I, well, I don't know where I was conceived, but I know where I was born. Uh, I probably just conceived in the bedroom. Uh, in, <laughs> Some That's, bedroom. In, in Belfast. Oh. I mean, I have well, no idea. My parents could have been anywhere, but um, you know, it could have been the washroom or yeah. anywhere. <laughs> well, how the fuck did you get to be in fucking Portugal, mate? That's the... I have no idea. You know, just one day I woke up and here I was. <laughs> like magic. Like Mr. See, ben. Did you ever did you ever have that TV program Mr. Ben where he goes no. into the cupboard and he dresses up as some special character and he just finds himself in a new world? Oh, we had a show that was really very much like that. It was called Harriet's Magic Hats. Well, it was a bit like Harriet's Magic Hats. <laughs> You just put on a hat and you ended up just in put Portugal. put on a hat and I woke up and I was here. It was amazing. <laughs> so you, you don't think you had any choice in the matter? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it depends where you're looking from. So, you know, if you're, we're going to get philosophical about it. From the ultimate perspective, uh, I wouldn't say, like looking from that philosophical ultimate perspective, I wouldn't say I have a choice in being here. It, that it was all a happening according to God's will, cosmic law, or whatever you want to call it. But then, of course, on the other hand, there is apparent choice. And, you know, we, Sonia and I, we'd been traveling around the world for so many years, and we were kind of looking for a place to call a base. 
And uh, actually, it actually we, we, we ended up here by accident because I thought, okay, well, let's have a look at Portugal. Uh, I'd been invited here to do a workshop. And then uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to look for, a, for a, a guest house and we can stay. Well, let's stay for a month or two months or whatever. And then explore around the country and see if there's anywhere that we like. And I look, I, you know, I went on Airbnb and I chose, well, basically, you know, I, be, I chose the, the cheapest one there was. <laughs> uh, it was like, you know, 400 euros for a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, you know, we, we arrived and it was beautiful. It's like, wow, this is amazing. Portugal must be the most amazing place on earth. And so we used that as the base. We hired a car and we went to the north and we came back and we were like, this is better. We went to the <laughs> south and we came back. It's like, you know what? This might be it. We went inland and we came back. And <laughs> now where we live is just like, it's like a two minute walk from that first guest house that we got. Oh, wow. Um, and I even remember, so it, it was Isa Casavignasa who, who had invited mm-hmm. me to come. And after I'd booked the guest house, she drove me into this area called uh, Colarish. And it's, it's like as soon as I came into the atmospheric orb of Colarish, it was like the light changed and became translucent and soft filtered. And it's just, it's just a magic in the air. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful where where you guys are. I remember uh, we That's were right, came, we were there we, together. Yeah, a couple right. of years ago. Showed yeah, you a couple was, of the spots. Yeah, it was amazing. So you're like you're teaching like yoga to Portuguese people. Yes, some Portuguese people. Uh, I mean, I, I've only just started giving regular classes here. Uh, mostly, what I've been doing has been what I call the Ashtang, very gloriously titled the Ashtanga Yoga <laughs> Summer School, where, you know, Songbird Summer School. Yeah. Summer Marketing School. Summer school. Summer school. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Uh, which is just providing, you know, space for practice and philosophy and chanting uh, and kind of a community space where people can rock climb or surf or go walking in the, in the forest. No, outside the classroom. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. The, the yoga and the chanting inside the classroom, the rock climbing and the surfing, we do that outside. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. And you had such an amazing um, philosophy about your summer school. I remember um, when you first started offering it a few years mm-hmm. back, it was sort of like a sliding scale or pay like what you can it was very open that way wasn't well, it originally uh when i when i first started doing it in rotterdam it was completely by donation uh right. because i wanted to it was completely by donation but people had to commit so they had to commit to come for at least i think it was at least two weeks mm-hmm. uh but most people were there for you know a month or two months or whatever uh just because I felt it was like an antidote to the – this time I was in Holland, and what was really prevalent in Holland was this workshop culture of you know international teachers coming through and doing a weekend or doing something like that. Uh, but there was – people weren't, I, I feel, getting like the experience of what it was like to be in a room over ex- 
an ex- more extended period of time sweating their asses off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, when when I first started doing it, it was in this uh, yoga school, Rotterdam, which was a little room in, in a tennis club. And it was a little bit like the Shala in Lakshmi Puram. Uh, because, you know, you could squeeze. I mean, I managed one day, I think, to squeeze over 20 people in this room. But it was kind of like torture for the for the poor people <laughs> because there was, no nice. wind, there was no windows. Uh, right. And it, it, it was underground. And wow. the heat, the heat was full power. So whenever oh. people left the room, they really felt like they'd had an experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Full detoxification <laughs> happened. I'd, I'd pay a couple hundred dollars for to do that for sure. <laughs> the, the amazing thing was, I so uh, it was it was the first couple of years totally by donation. Uh, you know, I'd watched this TED talk on a guy who was talking about his concept of the gift economy, what he called giftism, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was just such a good spirit behind it because I felt completely relieved of any need to give people value for money so oh, that every, nice. everything was just like everything was just me being me was just being an offering uh mm-hmm. and because people weren't didn't feel like there was a hard sell or anything like that you know they they purely gave from their hearts as well and what i what i felt from it was people love to give mm. and it was it was an incredibly rewarding experience hmm. That's so nice. So now, now, now the last years have, have been more of a sliding scale thing. So depending mm-hmm. upon people's financial situations. Uh, yeah. But I feel the heart of it is that donation. Yeah. Uh, donation yeah. Way. Which is a bit like back in the day, you know, you go to the teacher and he, uh, you, you give in, 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 in return for the teachings, you give dakshina. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, what you can, right? Yeah. So it's it's like the spirituality is it's like it's something that's truly a gift from mm-hmm. the teacher. Uh, you know, I have a chanting teacher and that's the way he operates is like, you know, I give him whatever envelope of whatever money I put into it. He doesn't even look at it. Mm. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. I'd like to go back to this kind of notion of, of choice and the choices mm-hmm. people make and whether or not they truly make them. Um, you had, you'd written a, a dissertation, which I, I had the pleasure to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent is Patanjali's Yoga Sutras deterministic? Mm-hmm. Which speaks to, uh, to the relationship, I think, if, I, if you allow me to paraphrase, uh, Samkhya yoga philosophy mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Samkhya philosophy and yoga. Um, I, had, um, I had heard from Richard Freeman one day that that Samakya was a non-dualist philosophy. And I just want to set up this whole thing through our talk. Um, Harmony, and I, Harmony and I argue this all the time, and I, I don't really have a, a philosophical foundation to argue with her she, as, as she does. But she doesn't think it's non-dualist at all. Mm-hmm. And it seems neither do you. Um, though Richard isn't violently opposed to the notion as she is. She is actually quite hostile to me um <laughs> where where do you stand on violence and philosophical stances uh well if if you want to win uh <laughs> in a philosophical argument uh violence is is a good last option to have yeah you are irish aren't you <laughs> <laughs> uh 
That's right. Depending on the day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> so with the, with the dualism in mind, um, you mentioned Prakriti and Purusha as a, as a dualist philosophy. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to ask you, how can Purusha be considered a thing that's plausibly a dual substance mm-hmm. to Prakriti? Well, I think uh, you're mistaken in the assumption that uh, Purusha is a thing. Yeah. Uh, Purusha is a, is the no thing, with as far as I understand it. Uh, I'm not saying I'm right, but I'm, this would definitely be my understanding of it. It's Purusha is the no thing within within which everything is contained. If if something can be labeled a thing, it is by its very nature, uh, according to the philosophy, prakriti. Uh, mm-hmm. And so where the, it differs from Western philosophy or where it differs from the Cartesian divide, uh, so the Cartesian divide is between mind and body. Yeah. Uh, the Sankian divide would be between uh, consciousness and matter. So mm-hmm. mind in the Sankian uh, dichotomy goes over from uh, the consciousness side and it goes over into the world of matter because mind is an observable phenomena. And if anything is a, an observable phenomena, it is by, by its very nature, not uh, that which witnesses it. Yeah, I love that in the Sankhya philosophy, the idea that our thoughts are actually a part of matter or a part of nature, property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to keep going back a layer to mm-hmm. the pure awareness. That's right. Um, which can't see itself because it's mm-hmm. it's the looker, right? Or the That's seer. right. Just the weird pure awareness is a thing. It's not a thing. You can't observe it. But I just called it a th- something. <laughs> yeah, but well, you're... That's not, then that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... The, it's the pure subject which cannot be made an object. Uh, well, I don't know what we're talking about. Then. That's, that's exactly that's exactly right. So <laughs> this is the be- this is the beauty of it. The beauty of it is is that it's a mystery, mm-hmm. and it it's not something that can be held onto. So at some point, you have to just drop it. Mm-hmm. At some point, you just have to give up and say, well, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And I think the getting of it is the not getting of it. Because oh. you say, okay, I don't get it, right? And you go, okay, I can't get it. It's not possible for me to get it. And then you give up. And that's also what I would say comes uh, to something like Ishvara Pranidana, is when mm. you just go, okay, I give up. I can't mm. get it. There's nothing. There's nothing to be done. Yeah, it was... that's why we should go into AA <laughs> to give ourselves up to a higher power. Well, yeah, talking it... about AA, there is there's a really something I came across a couple of years ago was a guy. Uh, I think he's in Canada, uh, who has a Facebook group called Advaita Holics Anonymous. <gasps> oh wow! Oh, that's cool. And his his stuff is I I really like his stuff actually. Hmm. Yeah. It's. I, brings to mind that idea that giving up is that sort of surrender, and in that surrender, you're able to release into something, and mm. that something is then that sort of unnameable, un, 
unknowable, unspeakable mystery, as you say. And that mm. I, I love that as this illustration of pranidana. The problem that happens then is people go, well, how do I surrender? Yeah. <laughs> what is the thing that I'm going to surrender into? And then they turn that into a thing which yeah. they, they try and try and try and try failingly to do. And then some other people will, you know, they'll proclaim themselves as fully surrendered and teach the rest of the world how to do it. But <laughs> again, it's not, it's not something that can be done. We are, we are helpless and hopeless. Mm. And all that we can do in the meantime is, is feed off these uh, spiritual narcotics of, you know, philosophical texts and yoga and you know yoga culture mm. i like that it, saying philosophical narcotics oh, it's wonderful it, it we'll, keep, we'll keep that one in our back yes. pocket it, it reminds <laughs> me that that very often um you you hear about the, you hear aphorisms about zen teachers speaking to their students who are endlessly asking them questions about what is zen and then inevitably, the Zen teacher punches them in the face. <laughs> and you see it. I mean, all the time I have this, the Zen Cohen's like, well, what do I do now? And the, and the teacher just punches them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's what you do because there's no that's real answer. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Oh, and then their mouth opens wide and they truly They're experience nothing. <laughs> Or they just experience pain, which yeah. which is the same thing. How so? Or they experience grief. Mm. Or they experience sadness. All these things that we're running away from to escape are the very things that are alive in us. Mm. You know, and if that's not spirituality, what is? You know, <laughs> sadness, heartbreak, joy you know, laughter, there's just different sides of the same coin. Would you say that the yoga practices, I mean, I guess whether it's asana or pranayama or meditation are really to bring us into a deeper state of being present with those sensations and that emotion or that experience, whether it's, you know, past, present or future, I guess, um, coming up and arising within us? Is that sort of part of the purpose of the practice? Well, you know, where I've come to with it is I've no idea what they're for. <laughs> what, these, what these practices are for, I have n- absolutely no idea. And any idea that I put upon them is just some kind of construal or theoreticization that might sound good, uh, but I'm I'm clueless. What's yoga for? You know, I've I've absolutely no idea. I tell you one thing though is that uh, I I love it. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> it keeps you coming back. You- keeps me coming back. Mm. But at the the end, you you can't say what it's for. For Mm -hmm. everybody who's doing it, 
in each and in in each and every given moment, it's doing something different. And for me, from my experience of today, to come to come to some generalization of this is what it's about, this is what it's for, is actually to do it violence, mm. because the, the the spectrums of possibilities are so broad and wide that mm-hmm. again, it's just something that opens out into a mystery. For some person, for some person, the purpose of of yoga might to be of to avoid discomfort in their lives. Mm. That might be the purpose. For other people, it, the purpose might be to explore sensations in the body, or you know, for other people, it might be. That's completely contradictory. Those two concepts. Absolutely. I mean, not contradictory. Yeah. And for that's for one person, it might be one on one day and one on another. Mm. <laughs> I want to avoid discomfort today and explore discomfort tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Every every day, I mean, haven't you noticed every day you do it? It's different. Mm-hmm. There's there's some other samskara running or some other vasana or you know I've I've done practices where I've been furious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are good ones. The, the the practice has been a vehicle for the expression of anger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At, at other times, I've been uh, practice has been the vehicle for getting into touch with tenderness. Mm. In your dissertation, um, you have this expression that I really enjoyed. Uh, we were just talking about Sankhya philosophy and and notions of. Prakriti and Purusha, and you have this phrase, Samkhya was unwarrantedly foisted on mm-hmm. yoga. Mm-hmm. And I just want to ask, what, what did you mean by that? Well, that's not my, uh, that's not my uh, terminology. I can't remember who I borrowed that from. But essentially, uh, what's happened in the academic world is because Sankhya philosophy is without doubt deterministic. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to save yoga philosophy from also being called deterministic. So one of the ways that they've done done this is by separating the diff- the two schools of Sankhya and yoga. And they say you shouldn't understand yoga through Sankhya because Sankhya has been foisted upon yoga. So it's mm-hmm. actually uh, it's actually a criticism of viewing the Sankhya and yoga as being essentially two sides of the same coin. It's saying that Sankhya and yoga are in fact different currencies. And mm. it's a mistake to see them as two sides of the same coin. So actually, I, I believe that the people who say who would argue that I, I believe that they're wrong and that you, you know, Sankhya and yoga, you, you can't understand one without the other. Yeah. How so? The, because the very, the, the, the metaphysics of, of yoga is completely based upon Sankhya. And even in certain sections of the, uh, of the yoga sutras like the vitarka vichara anandasmita rupa nuga so understanding the various layers of samadhi is uh, coming through a sankhyam base mm. 
so the 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 the, the very layers that you go through are uh, uh, the the insights of what those layers are are gained from the insights of the Sankhya philosophy. I mean, there's even some parts of the Yoga Sutras, the the, the, the second chapter in particular, which are they they appear as if they're essentially lifted out of the Sankhya Karika. Mm. That's fascinating. I've heard before that yoga, um, the yoga sutras and the yoga, uh, you know, texts give the practices Mm -hmm. that a practitioner is supposed to, you know, undertake in order to Mm -hmm. understand the metaphysics that Mm -hmm. philosophy, or sorry, that the metaphysics that Sankhya or the ontological um, sort of yes, but exposition where did, that Sankhya explained. Where did the metaphysics come from? The metaphysics came from experiential insight that came from practice. Hmm. So the practices come from the metaphysical insights, which are themselves uh, accessed through practice. So these, it's like a, it's like a Mebus loop. These okay. two things are these two things. Uh, practice and insight are continually informing each other. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Sankhya gives rise to yoga, which gives rise to Sankhya. So the two are essentially, you know, they're married with each other. And we have oh. to remember what is the practice of the yoga sutras. The practice of the yoga sutras is essentially meditation. And, uh, it's the penetrating insight of awareness through various uh, increasingly subtle layers of prakriti, mm. yeah. which, which uh, Patanjali calls pratiprasava. So it's mm. this subtilization of consciousness through increasingly subtle layers, which are the layers that are described in Sankhya to and including the buddhi, which is uh, the pre-personal intelligence. The, the, the discriminating faculty. I've... Yes, and it's, it, well, I, I don't, I wouldn't say buddhi is so much discriminate, discriminating faculty. My understanding of buddhi is that it is the intelligence of life. Mm. That that's what buddhi is. And from that intelligence of life becomes an then after that comes the individualized intelligence, which is what we call ahamkara, which is literally from the Sanskrit, the eye maker. Mm-hmm. But before that itself, it's just, it's just pure intelligence because that's what life is. Life is pure intelligence. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes individualized as, as me and I or he, she, or it, whatever it happens to be. You know, Richard often describes intelligence as your sense of humor. <laughs> Could well be. <laughs> I, um, I want to ask you another sort of paraphrase that I, I'm going to try and glean from your wonderful dissertation was that yoga utilizes Samkhya's metaphysical determin- determinism Mm-hmm. And yet, is also a vehicle for liberation, and I I don't understand how to hold those two concepts in my one mind. Mm. How can it be both those things? 
Well, I think it depends on what you consider liberation to be. Uh, and what liberation is sold as, what enlightenment is sold as, that I can get it. You know, so mm. I'm going to pay thousand euros to go on a weekend retreat to get enlightened because I think that I can Fuck get enlightened. Better. <laughs> or I, I do 20 years of Ashtanga yoga because I think it will get me enlightened. But right. what the, the idea is, is that there is an I who gets enlightened. And what I understand is the fundamental concept of liberation in yoga, or I mean, essentially the Indian philosophy, is it's the dissolving of the I. Mm -hmm. So I don't get enlightened. Nobody gets enlightened. Life comes to rest in life. And then whose life is it anyway? Who's, you know, who's running the show then? If I'm not there anymore, who's running the show? So there's no, you know, there's no question of in enlightenment or liberation. It's a, it's, it's, it's a dissolution like the, you know, the salt in a cube of salt or, you know, getting put into the ocean. Mm -hmm. It sounds uh, very similar to the Buddhist uh, idea or concept of, Shunyata, the dissolving sort of into the emptiness, right? Mm -hmm. And this idea of, of even like the anatman, the no self, mm -hmm. um, even though it's sort of uh, in opposition to mm -hmm. Indian philosophy of Atman and self mm -hmm. is Brahman, but mm -hmm. it's kind of the same in a weird way, right? <laughs> well, they, they kind of had this argument: is you know, is the uh, is the nature of self. Uh, a full emptiness or an empty fullness. I mean, that's essentially the the difference between the Buddhists and the and the Advaitins. Yeah. Is it a full emptiness or an empty fullness? You know. I mean, the, you know, the biggest criticism that was put to Adi Shankaracharya was people claiming that he was actually a crypto Buddhist. Not that he was into Bitcoin or anything like that. But he was, <laughs> <laughs> buy now, buy now. Uh, or, or even better that he was into doggy coin that's absolutely right uh, <laughs> so that was the biggest because they and why was this because they hated Buddhism mm, why yeah. did they hate Buddhism it wasn't it wasn't because of some fundamental philosophical difference they hated buddhism because uh buddhism rejected the vedic social order mm -hmm. that's yeah. why they hated buddhism buddhism took the caste system and threw it out yeah. and said look we're casteless and so anything that they could do to criticize buddhism you know they would do it mm -hmm. but essentially essentially it's there's a fine line of philosophical difference between say yoga and buddhism or you know advaita and buddhism mm -hmm. you've got the same sort of story in your own background don't you you're you're sort of halfy half you're half protestant but half catholic yeah that's right for my my two incredibly unreligious parents my mother was <laughs> from a uh, protestant background and my father is from a catholic background so i remember you know being a child you know maybe like six or seven years old uh standing on the street corner with the other kids in the neighborhood and would go round in a circle and everybody would say what they wear. Oh. And so the first one would say, I'm Protestant. 
And, you know, these kids, they all knew what they were. And the next one said, I'm Catholic, you know, Catholic, Protestant, Protestant. Yeah. And it came to me. And I didn't know who I was. Yeah. And did they then just beat the shit out of you? <laughs> no, that happened. That did happen another time, though. I was at a, I was at a swimming pool. And again, because you know, this is a conversation that you'd often have in Northern Ireland. It's basically, what are you? Right. Yeah. You know, are you are you are you with us or are you against us? Mm. And these kids, uh, these kids at the swimming pool, I remember they said, "Well, are you a Protestant or a Catholic?" And I said, "Well, I don't think I'm a Protestant." And they said, "This wee one's a Catholic. Let's get him." <laughs> luckily, luckily, I had a little bit of speed and I was able to get out there in the nick of time. But uh, it goes, it just goes to show, you know. So I took up yoga instead. Was it was it foisted on you, or did you actually choose it? <laughs> well, uh, again, that depends what perspective you're looking from. Uh, God, God foisted it upon me. Yeah. <laughs> well, how did he? How did she do that? <laughs> I think we believe in a different God. Russell. Oh, fuck <laughs> yeah. Well, mine has like eight arms and uh, tears the throats out of out of travelers. Right. Um, so your your judeo christian god who's almighty and white uh white supremacist like all you don't forget the beard yeah the beard the irish were um allied with the nazis in world war ii so i just don't want to let the conversation go by without mentioning that um as a jew i try and remember remind my irish friends um I I, you... I I think you're talking about a very very small minority of people who who no they were uh this is the actually the first world war they were trying to uh, run in arms from the the Germans to overthrow the British. Oh, it um, wasn't the it was the it was the Weimar Republic, not the not Weimar, the Reich. Yeah. No, not the no, right. No, no. Oh, well, that's not so too I think bad. You're, you're going to have to apologize to your Irish uh, friends. I, I should. Think you're, you were the first you're one to buy them against. Yeah, I'm so, so sorry to. So that would have been 1916. Yeah, yeah, Michael. The, Michael, what's his fuck? Michael Colony. Michael yeah, Colony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, him. It, it was actually a, a British fellow by the name of Roger Casement. Uh, you know, he was a very posh uh, landed gentry uh, mm-hmm. who was who was part of the rebel group who was bringing in arms. Uh, yeah. But, you know, they oh. failed miserably. I think the boat sunk and then they were all arrested and put to death. So it <laughs> didn't end well. It's odd that an Irish... Well, he's English. It's, you know, well, you, we oh, well, you know, one of the other leaders of the resistance was an incredibly posh English woman called uh, Countess Markovich. Mm. Countess... Oh, I'm sorry. Countess. 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 Yeah, yeah. So were your, were your uh, parents in the resistance? Were they in the IRA? Were they just... What did uh, they do? That, that I can't talk about. <laughs> you never can. <laughs> Fucking IRA. I was with an Irishman at the at the, uh, ch- the chai stand in Mysore, and he had a little um, Chinese wife. And a friend of ours took a photo of all of us and he stood up, this older man, I don't know if you knew him, but he, this older man stood up and he said, I, I want your fucking film and I want it right now because I can't have any photos of me. And like, don't make it any more obvious that you're the IRA man, okay? 
So he, he was hungover. He was hungover. <laughs> what, did, what did your parents do? And why, why do you think you ended up doing Again, that? I can't talk about that. Oh, right. I'm fucking Actually, I can't tell you. My, 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 my parents uh, met because uh, they were both models. Oh, wow. Uh, of they, course. Uh, they that met. So much. <laughs> that, ex- that totally explains it. Uh, <laughs> they met uh, filming uh, for a beer commercial. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's a uh, big money in Ireland. Beer? Yeah. It's... Yeah, <laughs> beer. <laughs> and so, what point did you find? Did you find yourself like really interested? Like, you noticed, like, you're, you're seven years old and you said, I'm into to contemplation. Hmm. I think it was actually, it was re- it, you know, I. I think that I was quite young. Uh, yeah. Like I remember like being given the Bible as a kid at school, you know, the school gave it to me, but I felt it was like something I had to hide. I was really fascinated by it, mm. but I had to like throw it to the, to the bottom of the cupboard because, you know, to Your be found out, they, they would, they, you know, my devil worshiping parents would be freaked out <laughs> by the fact that I had any interest in the Bible whatsoever. Uh, but I, I remember when I was like 13, or some, you know, somewhere around that early teenage years, being fascinated by like the, the Hare Krishna people. Hmm. And, uh, they, they gave me a book and I, I was it just made complete and absolute sense. Oh. Well, of course, I think now I think it's all rubbish. But back then, <laughs> so it wasn't stargazing; it was navel gazing, right from the oh, start. Well, for me, I think probably it was more shoe gazing. <laughs> Did you get that? So, in either there was you get these indie bands back in the day, back in the late eighties, early nineties, and that's how they were known. They were known as the shoe gazers because they uh. faced dance and look at their shoes so i was probably oh, right. yeah what was your first yoga class what drew you into like a asana was room? A fucking hara krishna sweetie <laughs> you read a book <laughs> but the first actual yoga class i was a uh, i was yeah. at university and i was uh doing my finals in uh edinburgh my degree in politics oh. and uh, oh politics that's what you were reading okay that's what I was doing, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I I met a fella on the street who had actually he had been my counselor, and he said, you know, look, they're doing this yoga thing, Ashtanga Yoga. You might enjoy it. And huh. I went with my then, well, I you know I got my girlfriend at the time to go along with me, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just. You know, I thought it was great. It was exactly what I was looking for. I mean, I, I remember the guy. He was a guy called Mark. He's he's not alive anymore. It's uh, actually tragically he committed suicide. Oh, uh, but I remember like going in and uh, sitting down, waiting for the class. I mean, you have to remember we're all complete neophyte yoga people. None of us even bloody know what yoga is. And he's there sitting in lotus, and then he lifts himself up into a handstand, you know, and holds it for a bit. And I just thought, yes, this is what I can do. <laughs> and how old were you? Uh, I think I was, let me see, year 2000. So I must have been like 20, 
22, 23, something like that. 23. I'm not sure it's a tragedy if you commit suicide because it's intentional. I think it's a tragedy when someone makes you commit suicide. <laughs> I think that's called murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a tragedy. Yeah. I think if su- suicide. Well, yeah, I mean, a- the tragedy element is, I guess, is that that's a story, right? It's like <laughs> it, there's, there's happenings, and then we tell the story of what happens, and we call it a tragedy or we call it a joy. And Mm. Yeah, it's just oh. a happening. Hmm. Yeah. This Let's idea do. of happening, it really, it, oh, it just reminds me so much of that Buddhist idea of uh, interdependence, co- like the co-arising interdependence of everything. Yeah. Well, oh, I, I guess, you know, my, my guess is, is that when you strip away the, our narrative faculty, mm. which is, you know, the faculty by which we understand the universe, you know, the world around us is that's all that there is, is all there is, is a continual unfolding of, of happening. Mm-hmm. And everything uh, affects everything else. I guess it's similar even to car- the idea of karma, the notion of karma then of each action creates a cause and each cause creates an effect and each effect is then a cause like that sort of cycle each each one would be anyway part of the whole yeah multiple causes and effects yeah i mean all i mean i i my i guess i mean because it's i mean i it's beautiful intellectualization right i mean i i love it and it takes your mind to like these beautiful kind of lit up places you know, neurons firing, uh, <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> Could be the spiritual narcotic. Could be. I mean, th- that's it. It's it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like a culture. You know, mm. it's like a and instead of junk culture, it's. Uh, I mean, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking about you know, these spiritual practices and yoga and how they're a form of culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, culture is like fungus. <laughs> you <know>? mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Some cultures are like, uh, you know, we have this black fungus currently growing in the kitchen and I'm you know, really not wanting to deal with it. But it's... It's, it's also it's, life. You don't want to hurt it. Right. But it's toxic. It's toxic. Yeah. Poisonous. <laughs> So you've some you. cultures which are it's toxic tough. and poisonous. Well, I mean, also inside your body, you know, cancer wants to be alive, right? Ah, but nice. It, it's a culture, mm-hmm. you know. But you want, and on the other hand, you want to kill it. Yeah, I do. So it's like on the one hand, you have these toxic cultures, which is you know. Like, but then you have other cultures, other forms of fungus, which are can be nutritious. Mm. even delectable or can even open up doors of perception (laughs) (laughs) so you know yoga on that spectrum is like kind of like it's it's a very interesting form of culture but a form of culture nonetheless Mm. i was driving behind a truck yesterday and the um the fellow had a um bumper big bumper sticker of his favorite um sports club and uh it was a cardinal 
the with a big thrush. I was like, wow, that's a great name for sports club. <laughs> female yeast infection. That's fantastic. That's that's something to be afraid of. Yeah. The, the 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 head of the team is called Candida. Exactly. <laughs> that's a big. That's the that's the mascot running around the field. <laughs> Candida bear. I mean, I, I, sorry to if there's any Candidas listening, but some people, <laughs> name, some parents actually name their children that, right? It's, oh my goodness! Oh. <laughs> did you lose? It's like naming you... your son Syphilis. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only I could have a child. Um, did you? Did you have the sense that um, that you were talented at yoga right from the start? No, not at all. And uh, even though, you know, that I'm aware that I can do certain of the asanas, I I wouldn't consider, definitely wouldn't consider myself talented. Wow. Because I knew right away that I I was not talented. (laughs) That's not what I've seen. That's not what I've seen, Russell. Bless you, mate. I was, I was so... I remember you showing me what it was at, uh, I think it was 2005, we're sitting at a cafe and you're showing me the method by which you used to do was it Kanda Pidasana, the first pose oh, yeah. of the series. Yeah. But how you would use the blocks to put your feet up. Yeah, that was always. And you know quite... what? I went home and I started doing it. Yeah. And my <laughs> knees have never been right since. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! I ruined a girl's knees in uh, Mula Bandhasana as well. She, I. I was at a party and I showed her how to do it and she tried it and her fucking knee dislocated right in front of me. That's where you get all the best yoga injuries are at parties. (laughs) (laughs) My my first yoga injury as well was at a party. It was a a New Year's party and I was doing, like I had so much to drink and I don't think it was, I don't think it was only that. And I bent, there was actually, there was a, uh, there was a British television star called Anna Freel at the party. Oh wow! Uh, this was a long time ago, and I think I was intentionally trying to show off for her. But anyway, sure. I, I I was showing off my forward bend, uh, and uh, of course I blacked out and I hit my head on the floor. Oh. But it, it, had, it had the desired effect because she came over and helped me. Oh, in no. my, in, with the blood on my face and whatnot. But, but the worst was explaining in you know the next day in yoga class exactly what had happened. <laughs> God, um, I was really, I was always really jealous of your development, and that's a really kind of wonderful thing about our yoga community. It's just how bitter we get about <laughs> our friends' success. And, There's a song called "We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the anthem of Ashtanga Yoga we Mysore should, style. <laughs> we should change it to the intro to our show. I. I but I had heard at one point that you were something of of an apostate, that on occasion you'd be drinking beer. And that well, was, it was so. It wasn't only on occasion, it was <laughs> really rather regularly. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that had anything to do with your success at, at uh, Ashtanga Yoga in Mysore, that you were drinking beer while you know I was trying to, to be a goody two shoes? Uh, I think definitely. And it helped before class, especially to limber <laughs> up. Like not just Dave fucking drinking, but like like two o'clock in the morning drinking. 
there'd be occasional lights of you know Friday night at the with the the Green Hotel was always the the party moment, but it's yeah. just kind of a way of you know because yoga can be so intense that you know it was like a way of letting your hair down. Yeah, well, we would have we normally just have like pizza Friday night, but you were you were drinking That's many so kingfishers. Many kingfishers. Yeah, many kingfishers. The, king, the, like, king, the kingfishers, I think, they had formaldehyde in them. Mm-hmm. Oh. It was always kind of like a tainted, uh, tainted drunk, uh, and just Saturday morning waking up in a hot mysore, like reeking of booze and having uh, the most incredibly blistering, piercing headache. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good. It's not the way to go. Have you given that up then? Yeah, I don't drink anymore. I haven't. I haven't had a drink in uh, three years. I think. But is that because you were drunk, or is it because you felt like you needed to to like really clean it, like clean up for your practice? Uh, well, I just realized it, it was no longer compatible with uh, with the way I wanted to live, and I, I guess I'd always considered, like I'd always had fun having a couple of drinks, and I guess I'd kind of thought that, oh yeah, I can do yoga and you know, have a few drinks and like it almost like alcohol was kind of like an ally in a way, keeping mm-hmm. me, keeping me, you know, keeping me real. Uh, mm. But it just, it just slowly over time, what I realized was that for me, alcohol is not an ally. It's mm. not, a, not a friend. And so I, you know, thought better to, uh, better to let it go than, mm. And actually, I I feel much better as a result. Hmm. What what changes have you noticed? Uh, just like just feeling cleaner. Hmm. Feeling a lot cleaner, cleaner and clearer, and uh, you know, you know, when we first arrived in Portugal, the wine is so good and also yeah. incredibly cheap. Yeah. And then, you know, you just find yourself, you know drinking more more than you need to and uh i just thought easier for me to break completely than to keep that relationship going mm-hmm. one of the things one of the unfortunate things that harmony and i have discovered is that we bring out the very worst in each other <laughs> and so we're kind of having to kind of take stock and try and figure this out because it's mm-hmm. uh we've, we've gone down some very dark corridors now <laughs> But we tell each other, we keep telling each other, like, absolutely good. no heroin and we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think that's... Math is okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a stimulant. Yeah. It keeps you busy. It's a, it's a struggle. Um, I think that a lot of practitioners have is how to find that balance. Um, I, I think especially with alcohol, because it's such a, a social accepted way to connect with like family and friends that aren't yoga people for your family it's it's like the entry <laughs> ticket to the house yeah <laughs> exactly it's just acceptable and it's, it's interesting i mean i remember that of you too you'd you'd always be at the pool or you know different places we'd we'd run into each other in mysore and at that point i wasn't drinking at all 
and very like strict with my diet and everything, trying to, you know, reach enlightenment a little faster. And you were always so relaxed and enjoying <laughs> a nice One beverage. Of the I used to love about Mysore was, uh, you know, everybody was there practicing hard, right? Really going for yeah. it. But it was also a place where, you know, I, I had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really loved about being in Mysore was it wasn't all you know, like yoga and studying and blah, blah, blah. It was also just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a real challenge, I think, for people too, because it, it really doesn't help the practice. <laughs> no, Even it though definitely doesn't. Definitely doesn't. No. <laughs> so it's but it's a really difficult thing i think for a lot of people to let go of and and give up well i th- I, I you know i think the it's difficult if people have the idea that they think they should mm. and i would never want to put that on anybody i mean again i wouldn't want to put on anybody the idea that they should practice <laughs> because that gives the impression that there's something wrong with them if they don't. Mm. And, you know, we live in a world of, you know, 8 billion people or whatever. How many of them practice Ashtanga yoga? You know, like mm. maximum, I have no idea, incredibly small number. Maybe so what, a million I've heard, but I think that includes people who take one class a month, one class a week. Yeah, so that's a tiny fraction of the world population. So what you're saying is everybody else should, everybody should practice. <laughs> and that means the world is well. The world is screwed up, but that means that uh, it means that there's something wrong with all of these people who don't. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's either either it's all God or it's not. You know, if the realization of yoga is that it's all God, well, then the person who's the junkie in the gutter is as much God as the person who can put their legs behind their head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know, and, not not one is better than the other. That's quite an absolutist point of view, isn't it? You're either a junkie or you've got your feet behind your head. Yeah. <laughs> those, wow. are, those are the two extremes and there's no in-between. <laughs> there's no in-between at all. There's a, there's a sharp That's blue it. line. Yeah. Sharp line. I had, a, I had my, one of my first experiences with yoga and meditation, uh, mm. for me, are forever intertwined with a psychotic episode I had doing way too much acid with my brother. Um, fucking not, a, not a full sheet, but like a lot, like mm. definitely, um, a column. Mm. And, um, and I, I've spoken to it in, in depth on a previous podcast. I, at that point, after that psychotic episode, I started using quite intuitively pranayama, to calm myself because I'd be having these poison nightmares and night sweats. And I was, I was deeply panicking in my room almost every night when the dark came. Hmm. And I, I found it was really quite beneficial. And I feel like it was a, it very much uh, galvanized me towards doing this therapy. Hmm. Um, I wonder, it, likewise, have you, have you found that yoga and meditation have had any effect on you? Because I've heard that none, sound, none whatsoever. <laughs> I've heard that your your mental health, like mine, um, may have been a, a struggle at points. And I wonder if you would feel comfortable speaking to it. 
Yeah, well, that was that was essentially the catalyst for getting me into yoga was that uh, when I left home and went to university, uh, I I experienced a incredible shift. Uh, well, I I became friends with a group of people who were among the most intelligent people I'd ever met, uh, but we as a group were also collectively quite gregarious mm-hmm. and i think it was after well i'm pretty sure after it was a uh, after a relationship breakdown that happened very quickly that i started to get into depression and this combined with the uh, continuous gregarious lifestyle combined with philosophical inquiry into the nature of who I was uh, led me into a a spiral of depression and uh, the uh, kind of the disintegration of my personality uh, that led to what some people might call a psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, which had to do with my a kind of search for the nature of truth. By this stage, I I discovered the the Tao Te Ching, and I hadn't discovered yoga yet, but I was doing Taoist practices mm-hmm. and reading reading Chinese philosophy. And you know, I was oh, I was hospitalized, but the one thing that I uh, took with me and held tight was I still have it to this day is this copy of the Tao Te Ching, because it was like a it was like a light in a in a dark place mm. and uh you know I, I was quite frightened and uh but there was one day where i woke up actually i've been brought back to belfast and uh brought back to belfast Yes, well, I, I'd, I'd, I'd been in hospital in, in Edinburgh, and I think my mother had come to, and brought me back to, to Belfast, oh. uh, where I could, you know, stay in the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was one evening where I remember uh, it's like this, this dialectic going through my head between, like, kind of like the 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 voices of light and the voices of darkness, you know, kind of, of Mm. good and bad. And it was like, then that voice, which seemed so pure and good actually upon further reflection was, was none other than the voice of darkness. And Mm. so it's like completely Mm. lost. And then boom, there was like this, uh, almost like this energy came down from center and all of the voices stopped uh, and I was utterly filled with joy mm. and uh, when the morning came I was like a, a giddy child mm-hmm. and I, I went and I you know I was so excited uh, to wake up my father and I went to my father's bedroom and I like kind of took him by the shoulders and I woke him up and said, Dad, Dad, I've lost my conditioning. 
gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's so fucking scary for me. <laughs> so frightening. <laughs> oh. Oh, my poor father, he mustn't have known what to do. Yeah. Well, they did know what to do because very quickly I find myself in, in hospital again, figuring out. Yeah, sure. Uh, they're asking, you know, because when they bring you to hospital, you've got to tell them who you are and what your name is. And I wasn't identified with any of it. Oh, so fine. they asked me what my name was and I would just remain in silence because, you know, I knew myself as silence. What age are you? Well, of course, I'm the ageless. I, you know, I don't, I don't have an age. Oh, uh, that's incredible. But the, the capitulation moment was the moment where I had to surrender to the situation. And it was so hard uh, mm. that they wanted me to sign this form with my name. Because mm-hmm. I knew I knew as clear as day that I wasn't my name. And mm. yet here they were going to pin me down to this to this fictional entity that I knew didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think eventually, okay, there you go. Give me the, give me the form. I'll, you know, reincarnate here, begrudgingly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally begrudgingly. God, that's so familiar to me. Um, mm. But that you weren't on LSD at the time. This had all sort of happened organically. Well, I, I had been before, and you know, had had definitely. Uh, quite an unpleasant experience that had been a, a catalyst mm-hmm. okay yeah. for sure yeah, it's, a, it's it's often referred to as a psychomimetic the mm. hallucinogens and mm-hmm. they that's what you're describing to me this that the my the experience of my consciousness being separated into absolutes things being good mm-hmm. like my brother is with me he's good i'm just going to hang on to him for dear fucking life Mm-hmm. Even if he had to go to the toilet, I would stand in there in the toilet with him and hold onto his arm. Mm-hmm. Or everything that everything else being evil and all these dark mm-hmm. voices speaking evil to me. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, yeah, suddenly in the middle of the night, and I had been conscious, uh, psychically trying to tell my brother to, to take me to the hospital, begging him in my mind to take me to the hospital, because I couldn't stand the the suffering and the pain and the violence that was being done to me by my own mind. Mm. And then, and for six months after I couldn't be around, like literally six months to a year, I, I couldn't stand being around sharp objects because it mm. had so much trauma associated with them from what, mm. you know, my being mind raped by my own consciousness. Mm. Um, and then suddenly, yeah, in the middle of the night, there was this, dead fucking silence and it was all gone Mm. oh this is death this is so nice finally being dead what a relief yeah Mm. (laughs) and then it came out of it i was like oh well okay the stuff is back the violent things are back and they're all like little like the little the giant beetles from the um the dark crystal you know kind of Mm -hmm eating at the corners of every substance, like the corners of the nooks and crannies of the walls. I'm constantly being broken open by these fucking giant beetles. Mm. And they would get into my nose and they would carve up my nose, things like that. Um, And then, but it was distant. It was a, there was a sense of distance from that. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I'm on the other side of this and I'll, I can feel that I'm going to recover. Uh, it took a long time. It took, you know, it took, it took a year. Mm. Well, for, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's ongoing. Ah. You know, the, the recovery, the, the, the recovery is, is what life is. Mm-hmm. Oh. You know, I, the, 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 that person is constantly shifting mm-hmm. and who I was never came back. Ah. And that's why, uh, I felt like I needed something like yoga as a discipline so that I could have a foundation to like return to those scary states of consciousness, but Mm -hmm. with a sense of power and with a sense of strength. Mm -hmm. And then later I learned it's, you know, basically it's just about getting your legs behind your head. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, <laughs> and and looking good on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's you're not going to get your feet behind your head unless you know, you you've got the financial means to support that activity. <laughs> exactly, that's right. I heard D- D- Danny Paradise once said, "If you, you if you do enough yoga, you become unemployable." Yeah, <laughs> that's a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Kiki Flynn once told us in, in Mysore. She was teaching us um, Sanskrit. She was teaching us different things, you know, mentoring us like a big sister, different things to read. Mm-hmm. She was teaching us about the Yoga Vashista. Mm-hmm. And in the first paragraph, there's a, there's, a, and she, there's a line about the blue of the sky is an illusion. And that actually what is real is the blanket of the stars. And I might be, I might be paraphrasing incorrectly, I'm sure of it. She said, if there's anything to learn from, from yoga or from the yoga vashisa, just take that away. That's all you need. And it, it reminds me, what you've been talking about reminds me about that. There seems to be a through line through mm. all these philosophical texts of, of holding opposites together and holding these, mm. these polar views, mm-hmm. darkness and light and, and Buddhism and Patanjali. I wonder if you would if you would also agree that's an accurate assessment. Hmm. Yeah, I think this this idea of things being held together is very important in the Indian philosophy, and uh, but also just in terms of present moment experience, and this is where I think Sankhya and yoga is actually really practical. Uh, because you can see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, the the very fact that you're having an experience means that there is an empty space within which an experience is happening. Because if you don't, how could you have an experience if you if there wasn't a space within which experience was happening? Oh, right. So it's like the so. The, there was the mentioning of the, the the sky and the stars. The the metaphor that I like to use, which is 
what I think gives a good grasp of Sankhya Yoga is the mirror and the reflection. Mm. So the mirror, the empty mirror, is consciousness. And the reflection that appears within the mirror is prakriti. And although oh. the two are separate, you can't actually separate them. You, you, you can't see the empty mirror. I don't know whether you've ever tried, but you know, I had a go, I had a go once, and like I, I kind of took my head inside and brought it back. No, but I was still there, right? No empty mirror. You know, I I I looked around the back, but that's not the mirror. That's the back of the mirror. That's right. So the mirror can't be without. I turned the lights off, but then I couldn't bloody see anything. <laughs> oh, that's making me cry, Luke. That's so beautiful. <laughs> the the uh, we know the mirror exists because of what is existing within it, and that's in the same way that the yoga philosophy talks about prakriti existing for the sake of purusha, purusharta. Mm. Uh, everything that is existing is there to show you the space within which existence is happening. I'd like to speak to that just a bit more. Um, there's something else there about um, the identification of the personality in your dissertation. And just to set it up, I was looking for um, a translation or a, a copy of the Yoga Vashista where I could, I could, um, read exactly this bit about the sky and, and, the, mm. and the stars. Um, I found this extraordinary copy, um, a PDF download, and it's by Iyer from 1897. Mm -hmm. And I sent it over to you um, on the email. Um, and Iyer is all in the, in the middle of, of introducing the Yoga Vashista he starts talking about the theosophists and Madame mm -hmm. Blavatsky, who I had always sort of thought of as, um, you know, child rapists, uh, the people that had um, kidnapped and raped Krishnamurti and the evil fox, you know, and mm -hmm. manipulative. Well, he did very well out of it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> if only we all could have been, you know, sexually abused Char as a child. Charles you know. Ledbetter, yeah. And, um, what I was I was stunned by this quote that right in the middle of it I felt like I'd been slapped in the in the fucking face. So Iyer says this about Madame Blavatsky and India and the Yoga Sutras and all of these other texts. I have got a deep-seated conviction in me which tells me that if theosophical ideas are ever to gain a firm footing in India. It can only be by showing that as Blavatsky's explanations of these spiritual texts, like the Yoga Sutras and, and Yoga Vashista, it is her explanations alone that can throw proper light on them. Mm -hmm. I thought that was extraordinary to read. I mean, can you imagine an Indian person telling you that today, that the only way that they could explain I mm. have yoga explained as if to have someone from the West explain it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a well, turnaround in a century. I, 
I, I, I think it, it might not be far off the mark. There's a fantastic book by uh, David Gordon White called The Biography of the Yoga Sutras, and he deals uh, exactly with this topic about how uh, yoga as a tradition was dead. Mm-hmm. There was no lineages of uh, yoga, and it fell to the feet of uh, a Western-educated elite within Bengal to take up the mantle of reforming Hinduism to make it uh, acceptable to a globalizing world. Mm-hmm. And one of these people was Vivekananda, mm-hmm. uh, who, from what I believe, uh, he first came in touch with yoga philosophy, which became the foundation of his presentation, through the Theosophical Society. Wow. Uh, so it's- it was, was the West. Chicago, it was through their. That's right. Through them. Uh-huh. Oh, fuck. So they, you know, they, well, he was also a member of different uh, occult societies, you know, and they saw themselves as an occult society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it was the Westerners who sold the, the new version of Hinduism back to India. Mm-hmm. The old traditional Hinduism was living alive and well, but it wasn't acceptable to, you know, kind of the world stage. Mm. So they wanted to, you know, modernize it and reform it. And they were familiar with English and they were brought up within the an English education system. And so they were used to learning from from the West. Mm-hmm. Even That's- even today, it's the same. You know, I uh, I was asked talking with a, a fellow I learned chanting from, and he he's. I said, "How come you you're teaching me? Because yeah. you know, because I'm not a Brahmin, right? And uh, the, you know, the Vedas are only meant to be taught to Brahmins within certain family rites, and after having taken their you know thread ceremony, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And he said, well, it's because my culture is dying and this is y- you people. He said, you know, your people, mm-hmm. you, you people are the ones who are interested in this. Mm-hmm. There's another beautiful book, that, that Nine Lives by William Dalrymple. And it, it just shows how this uh, beautiful ancient spiritual culture is dying as India is modernizing. And, uh, you know, people, you know, kids want to be IT engineers in Bangalore. They don't want to, you know, follow their father as a sculptor mm-hmm. and make Hindu deities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's beautiful tradition of storytelling in India. And it used to be once upon a time that uh, storytellers would travel from village to village and they would set up camp and for a number of weeks in the evening when people came back from work, they they knew the whole Mahabharata off mm. by heart. And this was how the culture was spread. And now there's nobody. Yeah. This tradition has, has died. Mm-hmm. It's, it's gone. That's, yeah. I, I I heard that also about the... The sculptures and those beautiful handcrafted um, 
you know, items that you can find in India that within mm. a generation or two, there won't be anyone who can do that kind of beautiful, um, you know, wood carving and sculpture work because the children, children aren't really that interested and doesn't pay them very well either, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, it, that would be a good way to live in poverty for the rest of their lives. Right? Yeah. yeah. It would be a good way to live. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's funny because, right, you have this imagining that, like, well, all the cultures are equal. Mm-hmm. But still, still there's a sadness inside that this culture dies or that culture dies. Or at the moment, what's happening here in the West is the arts are getting screwed. Yeah. 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 So we we, actually, the the arts could die. Theater could die. Theaters are closing down, never to reopen again. Yeah. Yeah. And so, oh, it's only theater. But still, it touches something inside us. I I think this is something, well, I feel sad about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine, let's take it somewhere else. Like, imagine that... uh, you never have a live yoga class again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've taken Where it there many times in my head. <laughs> or um, a yoga class where you're not allowed to touch people and everybody has to wear a mask mm-hmm. and everybody has to keep a distance. Is that what, is that how we want to live? Mm. I wouldn't want to teach that class. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, that's what we teach now. You know, yeah. we we need, we need each other. We need human presence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. has there been abuse in history of that very thing? Yeah, of course there has. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's all bad. Yeah, I think some people come to a a Shtanga yoga and a Mysore class just to have that touch, to have that connection, those adjustments. Because you can go through, especially if you live alone. You can go through many weeks without ever really touching anyone or being touched by someone unless you're mm. a part of a community or a very, you know, healthy, positive social network of friends and family. I moved to London uh, uh, shortly after I finished my finals at university. So London, you know, a city of 12 million people. And I knew nobody. Well, my sister lived in the opposite part of London. And of course, you know, to go anywhere takes an hour and a half. Yeah. And uh, every day I went to the yoga class. Mm. And that was my community. Yeah. And I I couldn't have been there without that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though in the first year, nobody spoke to me. <laughs> but still, still, but you still, it was quiet. Yeah, yeah. Still, really, I felt like I was part of something. Yeah, yeah. Because you're with you're with other people doing a thing that's that's so I don't know deeply personal and deeply transformative, but also very intimate and mm. without words, without. You know, even knowing the person's name beside you, you feel the the connection, that sameness, that that thing that's beyond the name. Yeah, it's like being part of a special club. Mm. <laughs> I um, 
It's so fascinating thinking about culture and thinking about what we are Mm. and what we're holding on to. And it's such an incredible position, like this phrase, people say, you know, you can never go home again. Mm. And it's, um, we're so invested in in mysticism now and and the, let's just say the three of us and whoever's listening, um, (laughs) that we're, we're, we're constantly told in our, in our adoration of these practices that we're actually quite divorced from India, from Indian culture, and we'll never be Brahmin. And mm-hmm. at the same time, we're, we're becoming seriously quite divorced from our native culture. We're, we're completely incomprehensible to our neighbors and to our family. It's, um, it's, a, it's a weird position to be in. And I, I found this, this other, this quote that uh, in, in your dissertation to, to finish, uh, I wonder if you could speak to it. Yoga does not deny, you said, that there is a self that acts and operates in the world. This self is, however, but a prakritic self whose imagination of conscious agency is the result of afflicted identification. What does that what does that all mean, Luke? I said that? Yes. (laughs) 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 Where? (laughs) That was probably towards the end, I don't know. Yeah. I would have been getting towards the conclusion. Yeah. So I'd have to think about that. Well, let me just see if I understand that. Uh, (laughs) I probably just ripped that off somebody else, you know. (laughs) Maybe you were like a medium, you know, you're having some something. Those were the those were the pure words of God. Yeah, Yeah, that's a way to describe your own words. That's fantastic. Coming coming from Atlantis. No, so yoga does not deny that there is a self that's acting in the world, but that self is a result of uh, afflicted identification. Mm. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it might have something to do with the idea of like a functional reality, a mundane reality, and then Mm. an ultimate reality. And I mean, sort Mm. of like when you were talking about having these, you know, experiences that, you know, were considered a, you know, psychotic break for you and, and having a very deep, visceral, real, um, and convicted knowingness that you weren't Luke, you weren't this name, you weren't this body, that this mm-hmm. was all just the mystics, the mystic se- yeah. self. Yeah. But on the other hand, you still have to exist mm-hmm. in the world and, and sign these papers sign the papers <laughs> and and also you know now live in portugal and teach yoga and and maintain a relationship and mate with your paramour <laughs> you're right and mm-hmm. so there's a functional reality where we have to take on almost a fake identity in order to exist mm-hmm. because you can't exist in in this beyond well, that's beautifully put, beautifully put, and I don't, I don't know if it's true. Um, 
there are people out there who say that they do live in such a state mm. continually. And I don't know if they're just bloody liars or not. Mm. <laughs> uh, but what I know is that the personality is like a function. Mm. It's like an operating system. And it's like an operating system that we believe in. But at the end of the day, it's nothing more than the firing of neurons. And it's a learned strategy for survival in a world that requires it. Mm -hmm. And it's something that Maybe it only comes in on its own when it's needed. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem or part of an apparent problem is, is that when it's not needed, it continues on of its own accord, thinking that it's running the show. Mm. And mm-hmm. that's wherein the so-called suffering lies. And yeah. it's it's the interface through which we communicate with others. But it's also the blockage that stops us from truly connecting. Mm. Yeah. It, if I can't stop being me and you can't stop being you as a personality, then we're never going to truly meet. I mean, mm. whether we truly meet or not, that's a different discussion anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the personality can be the way in which we fend people off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, certainly for me. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, that story of uh, Brahma, you know, the creator deity, and how he had five faces. And he started to feel quite self-important and very attached to his his role, and so he started to interfere with with the other uh, duties of like Shiva or Vishnu or different. Well, he was interfering with his daughter. That was the problem. Well, that's yeah. Ooh, <laughs> that's nasty. <laughs> he, he started to do all kinds of things that he shouldn't be doing. Fuck <laughs> <Talk about. laughs> no. The, the Shiva Purana is absolutely lurid and <laughs> should, be, should definitely be on the top shelf of any, any spiritual bookstore. <laughs> and then uh, Shiva, mm. you know, comes in and creates Bhairava, who chops mm. off Brahma's head and, and so then he has oh. the four heads. And uh, what you were speaking to kind of brought this story to my mind because it's, it's this sort of metaphorical uh, representation of, of chopping off, you know, this mm. personality that is identifying with everything and taking over and that we're unable to kind of drop. <laughs> and we have that, we have that metaphor again and again, this idea of having your head chopped off. And then it's there in the, in, you know, the Abaho Purushakaram is Patanjali. He's standing there. You know, and what is he holding? He's holding a sword. Mm. You know, and what's he going to do with the sword? The sword's to cut your head off, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's recognized and it's seen that within yoga, 
you as you think you are are the impediment mm. and you have to be dispatched hmm. ever so, back to violence with with you <laughs> i just want to say how fucking grateful i am to have you on the show you you're absolutely magnificent and um i think i sort of thought of you as a little bit little twerpy in my story so i'm really <laughs> really it's really wonderful to come back around and and meet you truly and you're well, i've i've had such an enjoyable conversation with you both mm. it's been and a real you... pleasure for me oh good well it was more of a pleasure for us i think because i know, hear we... these two voices in my head <laughs> <laughs> like, like they're my very own like my very own voices talking to me <laughs> we're trying to uh, we're trying to create that effect <laughs> you might be one of the only people to have uh, opened a yoga school during COVID what? Yeah. D- did you? Well, I, they started classes would be a, a more conservative way of putting it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, that's... Opening that's, a yoga school is maybe a, a grand, a grand, a grander way of, of describing it. Yes. But it's true, isn't it? You're teaching right yeah. now in Portugal. So, that's hush, hush. <laughs> okay. Oh, Secretly. Oh, we'll, edit, we'll edit the part out. <laughs> edit that part. <laughs> you're passing along disease-ridden students from one to the other <laughs> if someone were to want to maybe covertly get in touch with you what would be the best way uh, do it covertly <laughs> homing pigeon is always good <laughs> uh no i mean they can uh look up Stein- or kalaris yoga club on facebook or kalaris yoga club on instagram how do you spell uh, Kolaris? Are you going to put that in the notes somewhere? I will. Yeah, it's C-O-L-A-R-E-S. Oh, that's easy. Okay. Uh, Kolaris Yoga Club. Kolaris Yoga Club. Yeah. And are you planning on having your summer school this year again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So probably, you know, I'm thinking about probably mid, mid-July to probably mid-September. Mm. I'll do it for it's it's so hard to know what the situation is going to be. Uh, yeah. So last year there was restrictions on the numbers of people that I could have. Right. Uh, I imagine this year will be similar. So if I do it for a couple of months, it, it means you know there's uh, more of an opportunity to mm-hmm. for for people to come. Yeah, yeah. perfect. Well, thank I, you so much, Luke. It's just been so in, informative and enlightening and and spiritually uplifting as well yeah i feel really good, <laughs> good. i i look oh, forward the cat to is waiting you. for me uh, <laughs> i look forward to having you back on the show as soon as me that would be awesome yeah. it would be it would be truly a pleasure thanks for listening to this episode of finding harmony with me your host harmony slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity
watching the breaking.